Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Stagecoach, where you'll find the best Western books on the market and the men and women who write them. This podcast is brought to you by Dusty Saddles Publishing, home of the best-selling authors in the Western genre. This is your host, Ginger Winters. Join us as we continue the story of Where the Wind Takes You by Leroy A. Peters. Chapter 11 First Winter and Good News After experiencing his first incident with a grizzly bear, Isaiah reloaded his weapons and helped the running moon, Pierre, and shooting star woman skin and butcher the beast. It was an adult male and weighed 800 pounds. The extra meat would be greatly needed for the upcoming winter, not to mention bear grease was a useful commodity. It was used for cooking, pain medicine, skin care, and healthy hair growth among many Indian tribes. That didn't mean people were eager to risk their lives hunting grizzly, or even black bears in order to get it. It was decided that the group would spend their winter in the Bighorn Mountains. Trapping was good, as Isaiah, along with Jacques and Pierre, continued to bring in more beaver, doing whatever free time he had. Isaiah would use it to show Running Moon how to use a rifle and a pistol. She was an adept student, and Isaiah taught her how to load and reload and aim and fire until she got the hang of it. Running Moon knew how to use a bow and arrow ever since she was little. She was taught by her brother and father, and she was an expert at it. Becoming an expert at using the white man's fire stick was almost second nature to her thanks to her husband. The language lessons didn't seize either. Both Running Moon and Isaiah continued to teach and learn each other's language and both rapidly became adept, conversing with each other in a mixture of Assiniboine and English. Isaiah had a plan to teach her how to read and write the first chance he got. Unlike most trappers, Isaiah, as well as Jacques, were both highly literate as a result of coming from privileged upbringings. Even at his young age, Isaiah could read and write soon after he started talking, and he wanted to share that with Running Moon. It was the first week of November, and winter was coming on strong. A blizzard had hit the valley, causing the group to stay indoors. So Jacques, Pierre, and Isaiah had to go out after it ended to clear some of the snow and dig out enough snow so the horses could eat grass. This was a continuous process, and it happened often in the mountains. The valley protected them from the wind, and there was available wood for fire inside the lodges to keep everyone warm. Winter trapping season had ended. The lakes were frozen over so there was no trapping or fishing. Isaiah didn't seem to mind. He preferred hunting when he wasn't trapping, and while there was still plenty of meat for everyone, a little extra never hurt. When Isaiah insisted to Jacques and Pierre that he was going hunting one morning, they advised that he use extreme caution. 
Tribes did not usually raid during the winter, but there were exceptions. Running Moon insisted she go with him, and it didn't take much for him to say yes. Isaiah enjoyed her company, and she had become adept at loading, shooting, and reloading her husband's rifle and pistols. She didn't have any of her own, but Isaiah planned on getting her those kinds of weapons when he went to St. Louis to sell his plues. Among the language and shooting sessions, one thing that also continued to never cease between Isaiah and Running Moon was passionate lovemaking. Any chance they got, they would make love, especially if there was a blizzard outside and they were indoors. Fortunately, everyone had their own lodge or teepee, so the newlyweds had their glorious privacy. On the morning they went hunting, the snow was knee-high. The last blizzard had ended a few days before, but the horses were well-fed thanks to Isaiah, Jacques, and Pierre clearing out the snow for them to feed on grass. The game was still plentiful, but the happy newlywed couple had to venture a little farther from the campsite to find it. Isaiah had his Springfield musket ready in case of trouble. He was heavily armed with two scalping knives, an Arkansas toothpick, and brand new Assiniboine tomahawk that Pierre made for him as a wedding present. Running Moon rode behind him on a spotted mare, pulling two pack horses. She too was armed with her bow and arrow, two knives in her belt, and she carried her husband's two flintlock pistols in her belt as well. While the grizzly bears and rattlesnakes were hibernating, much to Isaiah's relief. Packs of hungry wolves, wolverines, and mountain lions still prowled during the winter months in the Rockies. While not as formidable as the King of Beasts, the Grizzlies, they were dangerous in their own right, especially the Wolverines. Running Moon, who was born in the wilderness and knew the dangers like the back of her hand, would sometimes spot a sign that her husband missed, such as the horse tracks that he passed by. She immediately rode up to him and touched him on his shoulder to get his attention and pointed to the tracks. How did I miss those? he asked. You were looking ahead instead of down, she said in a one. He smiled and thanked her in the Assiniboine tongue, before jumping down to investigate the tracks. I can't tell how old they are, said Isaiah, but they are definitely recent and they are unshod. We are in Crow Country, said Running Moon. We must be careful, like Jacques and Pierre said. Isaiah nodded in agreement. Crows were enemies to the Assiniboine, but they were primarily horse thieves and would most likely be interested in trying to steal their horses. Isaiah was concerned about the Blackfeet, who were enemies to just about everyone except the Etsina or Gros Ventra, as they were called by the trappers, while their territory was farther north towards Canada. Like most nomadic tribes, the Blackfeet and the Etsina traveled wherever they pleased. We better get going, said Isaiah, and continued to keep a lookout. It was at that moment he spotted it. Farther south of them, coming around a cul-de-sac, was a black bear. While not as big and lethal as a mighty grizzly bear, the American black bear is just as unpredictable and dangerous, especially when disturbed or a female with cubs. The weight of the beasts vary, with males weighing up to 550 pounds, while females can weigh up to 375 pounds. Isaiah had seen black bears before, growing up and living in South Carolina during his short time living in St. Louis, but they didn't appear to be as big as this one that stood before him and Running Moon in the clearing. This one was clearly a male, and from where they were standing, Isaiah guessed it was at least closer to 600 pounds. Not wanting to frighten the beast, Running Moon sighed to her husband. We could use some more bear grease, she said. Taking her cue, Isaiah slowly got down from his horse, handed her the reins, and got into position. The bear had not smelled them yet, which was good. Like their cousins, the grizzlies, black bears had poor eyesight, but a terrific sense of smell. While in kneeling position, Isaiah took a deep breath, 
cocked his rifle, aimed at the black bear, and fired. In a flash of gunpowder smoke that almost blinded Isaiah, the bullet found his mark, hitting the black bear on the neck. The beast went berserk at the pain and was roaring and jerking left and right as if it had no idea what to do. Isaiah quickly reloaded his musket while Running Moon kept control of the horses. After he was finished reloading, he cocked the rifle, aimed, and fired at the bear again. This time, the bullet managed to find his mark under the bear's shoulder, hitting a vital organ. With that, the mortally wounded bear collapsed and breathed his last. Isaiah reloaded his rifle, and he and Running Moon remounted their horses. They cautiously approached the dead bear. Isaiah remembered Pierre telling him that just because a bear looks dead doesn't mean it is. Isaiah planned on putting another bullet in the black bear just to make sure it was dead. When they reached it from a safe distance, Isaiah handed his rifle to Running Moon and asked her for one of the flintlock pistols. Wait here, he said in a Cinnabon. Be careful, she responded. He gave her an assuring smile. What did I ever do to deserve this woman? He thought to himself. He approached the black bear with caution, seeing no sign of movement from it. As he walked up to its head, he cocked the pistol, pointed at the beast, and fired a bullet into its skull. It was dead for sure. Isaiah signaled Running Moon to ride on in. As he was reloading the flintlock pistol, he noticed Running Moon kneeling beside the black bear. He had seen her and some of the Assiniboine warriors do this before, after they had killed game for food. He had wanted to ask her about it, but never had the chance until now. Why do you do that? He asked her after she was done chanting and praying. Any animal we kill, we must thank it for sacrificing its life so that we can live, she answered. My people have been doing that since time immemorial. Interesting, said Isaiah. Does this bother you? asked Running Moon. Isaiah shook his head. No, just curious is all, he said. My people do the same thing, except we give thanks to God or the Creator for the food. Now Running Moon was curious. You never thanked the animal for its life? Nope. Because where I come from, we believe animals don't have spirits, said Isaiah. At least that is what I was taught. Running Moon gave a look as if she was in deep thought. As if reading her mind, Isaiah said, You must think we white men are strange. No, said Running Moon. Just different, I think. Do you think me strange? asked Isaiah. Running Moon smiled and giggled. In a way, she said, but I think you're a good man with a good heart. Isaiah turned beet red. I don't know about all that now, he said, but I try to be. After that, he walked up to her and gave her a passionate kiss before they went to butcher the bear. The weather was cold, however. The noonday sun did warm things up a little bit as Isaiah and Running Moon were in the middle of butchering the black bear. After they had gotten the hide skinned off, Running Moon cracked the bear's skull open with her husband's tomahawk and removed the brains. She put the brains in her pouch and was smiling at Isaiah, when suddenly her facial expression changed. Taking her cue, Isaiah immediately grabbed his rifle and spun around. Not more than a half a mile from them were Indians. Isaiah and Running Moon couldn't tell which tribe they were, not from that distance, but Isaiah was not taking any chances. He stood in front of Running Moon as they approached. When they got closer, Running Moon could tell who they were by the way they were dressed. Crow, she said, as she armed herself with her bow and arrow. Isaiah nodded. There were five men. None wore any war paint, so this is not a war party, but that could change at any moment. 
When they were about 20 feet from the couple, the crow stopped. The leader gave a peace sign, holding up his hand, palm out. Isaiah responded the same way, giving the peace sign. He noticed that one of the riders had a mule deer tied to his horse. Another was pulling two pack horses loaded with two quarters of moose. This was a hunting party, and a very successful one at that. Isaiah silently prayed that it stayed that way, at least for Running Moon's sake. I am called Kicking Horse, signed the crow leader. How are you called, white man? I am called Yellowhair, responded Isaiah in sign. This is my wife, Running Moon. Kicking Horse got a good look at Running Moon and nodded. The lands of the Assiniboine is far north from here, he said. Why are you in the land of the crow? To trap the flat tail and spend the winter, answered Isaiah. We mean you and your people no harm. Do you know that the Assiniboine and my people are enemies? Asked Kicking Horse. Isaiah gulped as he nodded. My wife and I have no quarrel with the crow, he said. I say that you and your warriors have had a good hunt. As of you and your woman, signed Kicking Horse as he stared at what was left of the black bear. Offer him tobacco, said Running Moon in English. Why? said Isaiah. If you offer to smoke tobacco with him, they might just leave without trouble, said Running Moon. Why did not think of that, said Isaiah. We have tobacco, Kicking Horse. Do you wish to smoke the peace pipe? Kicking Horse spoke to the rest of his men, and they all nodded. Among them appeared to be an elderly warrior in his fifties. The rest of this crow hunting party appeared to be in their mid-twenties to early thirties, including Kicking Horse. Running Moon quickly washed the blood of the bear from her arms in the snow, and then hurriedly retrieved the tobacco from her horse to give to her husband. Kicking Horse and his warriors dismounted and sat down across from Isaiah. The elder in the group had his peace pipe and gladly took the tobacco from Isaiah. He did the ritual of pointing the pipe to the four winds of Mother Earth, before lighting it from flint and smoking it, passing it along to Kicking Horse who repeated the process. Kicking Horse gave it to Isaiah, who repeated the process out of respect, thank God that these men were friends and not foes, before giving it to Running Moon who was standing behind him. Women don't take part in these ceremonies, she said in English as she rejected the pipe. Oh, said Isaiah. I did not know that. Kicking Horse and the Crow Elder were smirking. When Isaiah returned the pipe, the Elder dumped the ashes and put the pipe back in his pouch. You must be new to our land, the Elder signed. Isaiah was a little embarrassed. I am, he signed. Came here this past summer with the French trapper and his son. This trapper, signed Kicking Horse. Does he have a name? Jacques Ludo, said Isaiah in English. Kicking Horse, the Elder, and the three crow warriors of the hunting party immediately recognized that name. I know that name, signed the Elder. Even though he lives among our enemies in the Assiniboine, he is spoken about as a man of great honor. He is a good man, signed Isaiah. I have learned much from him and his son many times since they brought me out here. This is good, said the Elder. How are you called? asked Isaiah. Screaming Eagle, answered the Elder. Suddenly, Running Moon removed herself and ran to the bushes to vomit. Concerned, Isaiah ran after her. Are you all right? he asked her. She gently pushed him away. I am fine, husband, she said. Must be this cold weather or something I ate. Could be the smell from the bear carcass, said Isaiah. We best wrap this up and be on our way. Running Moon agreed as they returned to the crow. 
They quickly noticed Kicking Horse and Screaming Eagle were smiling. Your woman is with child, signed Screaming Eagle. The creator has truly blessed you, yellow hair. Isaiah and Running Moon thought the crow other was joking, but once they both looked at the expression on his face, they knew he wasn't. My woman has given me seven children, signed the crow elder. Kicking horse here is my eldest, so I know the signs. I have three children of my own, signed kicking horse. From the moment we arrived, I could tell your woman was with child, even if neither of you could not. Isaiah and Running Moon just stared at each other. Running Moon's color just suddenly drained, for she had no idea and the thought of her being pregnant kind of frightened her. Isaiah looked concerned, but for a split second later, he was grinning from ear to ear, and he gently picked up Running Moon and swung her around, hollering to the high heavens. The crow hunting party was amused. After he put down his wife, she asked, You are happy that I am a child? Yes, said Isaiah in both Assiniboine and English. I am a little scared because I do not know a thing about being a father. You didn't know a thing about being a husband, either, said Running Moon, smiling for the first time. But you seem to be doing that very well. In response, he kissed her over and over again. Then he turned to Kicking Horse and Screaming Eagle, giving them both bear hugs and thanking them. He offered them half of the bear meat, which they accepted. In return, Kicking Horse graciously gave them the mule deer as a sign of friendship. Before the crows left... Screaming Eagle signed to Isaiah that he and Running Moon were welcome in his village any time. They both thanked him and his son for their kindness. Later that evening, they arrived back at camp with half a black bear and a whole mule deer. Jacques and Pierre were extremely relieved to see them back safe and sound. It is about time you two got back, said Pierre. Another storm is coming, and we were afraid you might get caught in it. I see your hunt was successful, said Jacques, who looked on impressively, as Cypher's bird woman stood by his side. We have great news, said Isaiah. But first let us skin this mule deer and prepare the bear meat and we will tell you how our date went. After they skinned and butchered the mule deer and prepared the bear meat for dinner, Isaiah and Running Moon told their story about the meeting with the crow hunting party and how their elder, Screaming Eagle, told them that they were expecting. Cypher's Bird Woman, Shooting Star Woman, Lizette, and Marie cheered and clapped their hands in approval of the announcement of Running Moon's pregnancy. Jacques and Pierre slapped Isaiah on the back and howled in approval. Congratulations, mon ami, said Pierre. I knew you had it in you. Yay, shouted Isaiah in mock anger. But Pierre just shrugged and gave his friend a bear hug. Did you say the cause at the name of Screaming Eagle? Asked Jacques. Isaiah nodded. I know him, said Jacques. He is more than just an adult. He is a war chief among the mountain hall. Will he recognize your name? said Isaiah. Spoke very highly of you. I think very highly of him as well, said Jacques. This calls for a celebration. Chapter 12 White Bird of the Hadatsa Winter in the Bighorns passed without a hitch. It was now the first week of February in 1807. Isaiah just celebrated his 17th birthday, and Running Moon was starting to show. The meat and vegetables they saved up during the winter months was a huge blessing. There were times it was hard for anyone to venture out because of the blizzards that came and went from the valley. The women managed to grind most of the bear meat into jerky, which gave the human body energy. The horses had lost some weight during the coldest winter months, 
but now we're getting some of it back as the men continued to shovel and clear away the snow so the animals could feed on grass. Even though it was February, winter was still going strong, but it wasn't as bad as it was in December or January. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No the cold weather was getting milder, and the sun was coming out more and more. Pretty soon, Jacques thought it would be safe to try and get an early start in the spring trapping season, before returning to the village of Yellow Wolf in the Big Sheep Mountains. I believe now is an excellent time to start typing, he said. The beaver has yet to shed his fur, so they are at the thickies. Should we expect trouble from Roman war parties? asked Isaiah. Mon ami, you should always expect trouble, said Jacques. No matter where or who it comes from, we must always be prepared. I know, said Isaiah with a shrug. He was worried, not for himself, but for Bunny Moon. This did not go unnoticed by her, and she assured him all would be well. Our baby will not be here until summer, she said. That is not what worries me, said Isaiah. It's what happens between now and then, and I don't want to put you or our unborn baby in any danger. Cyphus Birdwoman was chuckling. What's so funny? asked Isaiah. You sound like Jock, answered Cyphus Birdwoman, when I was pregnant with all three of our children. The Frenchman turned beet red. Well, you can't blame me, can you? He said. There are too many dangers in these here mountains, and they can kill you in more ways than one. You always seem to forget, said Cyphus Birdwoman. My people have been living here in these mountains and on the plains long before you white men came. Touche, mon amour, said Jacques. But that doesn't mean I still can't worry about the safety of my family. You took the words right out of my mouth, said Isaiah. Are we going to trap? asked Pierre. Or just sit here on the bed about being worry bolts. Jacques just shrugged while the woman giggled. After breakfast, the group packed up everything and rode out of the valley to find better trapping grounds. The Bighorn Mountains was a wide region that had suitable trapping grounds, and when the weather permitted, finding beaver fur was not difficult. However, Isaiah had every reason to worry. While his and Running Moon's encounter with the Crow hunting party last November ended in a peaceful situation, he knew it wasn't always going to be like that, and now that he was a father-to-be, he was determined to be fully aware when it came to his surroundings. Fortunately, he wasn't alone. Pierre felt the same when it came to shooting Star Woman, and his parents and sisters as well. The difference was that he didn't show his worry as much as Isaiah did. He knew his parents could take care of themselves, and his sisters were no helpless damsels in distress. Despite their age, they could be fierce in a fight, protecting their loved ones from all enemies both two-legged and four-legged, a trait they learned well from both of their parents and maternal grandparents. While traveling near the Yellowstone River region, all was well, until Jacques heard a snap of a twig. He immediately called a halt by holding up his hand. Everyone immediately stopped in their tracks and were silent. That is when Isaiah saw them from a distance. Indians riding a hidden game trail. They had not spotted the two families yet, giving them enough time to get out of sight. The forest was thick enough to hide an entire war party. 
so it was no surprise that Jacques' group stumbled upon this caravan of what appeared to be at least 12 men. None of them painted for war, but that didn't mean anything. Cypher's birdwoman slowly rode up to her husband and whispered, Gros Ventre. Jacques nodded to her that he knew and had her sign to the rest who these men were. However, that was unnecessary, for Running Moon had already told Isaiah and Pierre. What felt like almost an hour was actually two minutes of cautious silence as a caravan passed by them. Something wasn't right. The Gros Ventre territory, along with their allies, the Blackfeet, was farther north toward Canada. Even though they were nomadic and went wherever they pleased, this group was too far south to be a hunting party, and it was far too early for an enemy tribe to be raiding another tribe. So what was this caravan doing here? Jacques wanted to know, but first, his family's safety was a top priority. We must get the move on and find a safe and suitable place, he said. That was not the hunting party, said Pierre. We, oui, said Jacques. But it is too early for the Gros Ventre to be raiding, especially this far south. Unless, said Isaiah, there must be a village nearby. Probably thinking about getting a head start on the raiding season. Jacques, Pierre, and Cypher's bird woman looked at Isaiah as if he were onto something. Mon Dieu, mon ami, said Jacques. I believe you're right. Either way, it is not safe here, said Isaiah. They are headed east. So I think if we head further west, away from them, we should be safe. Not if they find our tracks we want, said Pierre. Remember, our formal camp is in the direction they are heading. Pierre is correct, said Jacques. Well, what do you suggest? asked Isaiah. We will head farther west as you suggested, mon ami, said Jacques. But it will be foolish to start trapping while the course are on the prowl. Isaiah had a look of concern on his face. You are not suggesting what I think you're suggesting. An ambush? Said Jacques. We. Oui. What about our wives and our daughters? Said Isaiah. We will be putting them in harm's way. I think you know me better than that, mon ami. Said Jacques. We will find a suitable place to camp and cash our food for the time being. You need not worry, yellow hair. Said Cypher's bird woman. You are not helpless women and do not fear our enemies the Gros Venture. Well said, mon ami. Said Jacques. <sighs> I still say we would be asking for trouble, said Isaiah. We will be asking for trouble if they find our tracks after they return from wherever they're going, said Pierre. Besides, I could use a few more scouts. They continued farther west and managed to find a spot. They didn't unpack the teepees, just in case they needed to get out in a hurry. Despite that, it was still winter, the sun was out, and the weather was agreeable. Isaiah got the fire starting and had the coffee ready before he, Jacques, and Pierre headed back to where they first spotted the Gros Ventre. The women had some extra jerky packed for their husbands. While they were proud of them, they still worried. Running Moon was concerned the most. She shared Isaiah's logic. While she had no love for the Gros Ventre, she wasn't ready to be a widow, especially with the baby coming. Come back safe to me, Isaiah, she said. That was the first time she called him by his real name and pronounced it right. He stroked her cheek and gently placed a hand on her belly. One way or the other, he said in the one. I will return to you and our little one. Jacques and Pierre had already mounted their horses. Cypher's bird woman had her rifle and two pistols, while Running Moon and Shooting Star Woman were armed with their bows and arrows, letting their men know that they were prepared for anything while they were gone. 
If we are not back within a day, said Jacques, head north to find Yellow Wolf. Stay away from the river. The women nodded as the men rode out to their new secluded camp and backtracked their way to where they had spotted the Grossventure caravan. Members of the feared Blackfoot Confederacy, the Grossventure tribe lived in what is now north-central Montana. Out of all the members of the Blackfoot Confederacy, they were the Assiniboine Indians' main and most hated enemy. While they were allies of the Blackfeet, the tribe itself were distant relatives of the Arapaho and Cheyenne. While the name Grossventure was what the trappers called the tribe, they called themselves the Haninin, and the Blackfeet called them the Atsina. The tribe returned to the spot where they had found the Grossventure caravan. After it was clear that they had not returned from the east yet, Jacques laid out his plan on how to ambush them. Isaiah would take the cliff on top of the game trail, where they would have to enter, while Jacques and Pierre would take positions opposite each other farther down the game trail. Jacques was armed for bear, but he also had a bow and arrow and would sometimes use it to conserve ammunition. Same with Pierre, who preferred the traditional way, using a bow and arrow, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't use his rifle when necessary. Isaiah was armed and ready and said a silent prayer that this is not his last day on earth. Don't worry, mon ami, said Jacques. If this plan goes well, we will see our moles again in no time. And if this plan doesn't go well, said Isaiah. He doesn't think that far ahead, laughed Pierre. You two are crazy, said Isaiah. You'll just figure that out, laughed Jacques. Around an hour later that afternoon, the Gross Venture war party had returned. Their faces were painted, and wherever or whoever they had raided, it was a success. They were passing through the game trail with extra horses and something else. They had a captive. Isaiah noticed the captive from his hidden position in the cliff. She was an Indian girl from another tribe, and she was tied to her horse face down, with her hands and feet tied to each other under the horse's belly. Isaiah felt strong sympathy for her predicament, and was determined to free her but he had to wait for Jacques' signal first. The Grossventure warrior who led the horse carrying the captive was in the rear of the war party. As soon as he entered the game trail, that was the opportunity Isaiah needed. Jacques told him to wait until the last warrior was in the game trail. With that, Isaiah did not hesitate as he cocked his rifle, aimed at the Grossventure leading the horse carrying the captive, and fired without hesitation. The man's head exploded. Following Isaiah's shot, Jacques and Pierre unleashed their arrows into the war party. The first three warriors went down with at least two arrows in each of them, while they were temporarily distracted from Isaiah's shot. When the war party realized that they were under attack, Jacques already had out his rifle at the ready and fired into them, felling another warrior. Isaiah had quickly reloaded and shot down another cross-venture warrior, reducing the war party number by half. Panic ensued as the warriors, some armed with fussies, tried to fire at whoever was attacking them. The horse carrying the captive immediately panicked and ran in the direction from which it came, carrying the captive still tied to it. Isaiah wanted to go after her so he could free her, but there were still six deadly Grossventure to deal with. Jacques and Pierre managed to bring down two more, while Isaiah reloaded and brought down another warrior. The remaining three warriors tried to make a go of it, but Isaiah took a gamble, and with two loaded pistols cocked and ready, he jumped from his position and shot one warrior from his horse and shot another warrior's horse from under him, causing the animal to fall with his rider on it. Isaiah noticed the third warrior charging at him with a war club, but Jacques' rifle cut him down before he had the chance to reach him. The Grosse Ventra, whose horse Isaiah shot, had his leg trapped under it, 
he tried to shoot Isaiah with his Fusi gun, but Isaiah managed to kick the weapon from the man's hand and bury a tomahawk into his skull, killing him instantly. Magnifique, mon ami! shouted Jacques as he reloaded his rifle while running towards Isaiah. Congratulate me later, said Isaiah. I have to free that girl. Isaiah quickly mounted his horse and rode into the direction where he last saw the horse carrying the poor captive. He didn't have to go far to find them, about a half a mile. The girl looked up and saw Isaiah approach her slowly. He signed to her, saying that he was a friend. He got off his horse, took out his Arkansas toothpick, and cut the girl's bonds. She never took her eyes off him, even after she removed the gag from her mouth after he freed her. For the first time, Isaiah got a good look at her. She appeared to be a little older than him, and she was pretty. She had a round face, and like Running Moon, she was pretty well endowed. Isaiah frowned when he saw her black eye. Apparently, the Grouse Venture had abused her. Again, he signed that he was a friend, and she was now free. She responded in sign. Are the Grouse Venture dogs dead? Isaiah nodded. The girl smiled. I am called Yellowhair of the Acidabon, signed Isaiah. I am Whitebird, signed the girl. My people are the Hidatsa. After the introductions were made, Isaiah, followed by Whitebird, rode back to where Jacques and Pierre were on the game trail, where they ambushed the Gros Ventra. The father and son had just finished scalping all the Gros Ventra warriors they killed, but those that still had their hair were the ones Isaiah killed. They mentioned as much when he and Whitebird rode in. Why didn't you take the scalps? Asked Isaiah. Because they are not all to take, said Jacques. You kill them, so you must do the honors. Oh, no, said Isaiah. You know how I feel about such things. If you don't, the Assinobon will think less of you, said Pierre. Remember, taking the scalp of an enemy gets you a lot of respect. I know, big medicine, said Isaiah. We, oui, said both Jacques and Pierre. At that moment, they heard Whitebird shouting something in their language. They turned as they saw her kicking and spitting at the dead cross-venture warriors, who took her against her will. Who was your no friend, Isaiah? asked Pierre, grinning wickedly. Her name is Whitebird, answered Isaiah. She is a Hidatsa. I could tell by her twice, said Jacques. What are you going to do with her? Return her to her people, of course, said Isaiah. What else should I do with her? Well, of course you should return her to her people, chuckled Jacques. It is the right thing to do, after all. Oh, you could take her as a second wife, said Pierre. What? Calm down, mon ami, said Jacques. But Pierre does have a point. Having more than one wife is common among the tribes, especially among the Cinderborn and her tribe, the Hitatsa. I am not taking a second wife, shouted Isaiah. And I don't want you two numbskulls to advise it or even mention it to me ever again. Father and son just raised their hands and shrugged. Chapter 13 Do the Right Thing After the successful ambush, the trio and their new friend disposed of the bodies of the Gross Venture War Party and took their horses. However, it was agreed that the plunder and the horses the War Party took from the Hidatsa belonged to Whitebird. They rode all day, arriving at their camp well past nightfall. Lisette was the first to spot her father and brother as they came in from the east. She shouted in joy, announcing their return. Her mother, sister, Running Moon, and Shooting Star Woman all stopped what they were doing 
and ran to greet the men as they rode in. Lisette and Marie jumped on their father as he dismounted from his horse, greeting him with kisses. Pierre was greeted with the same from Shooting Star Woman, and he reciprocated with a gentle hug of his own. Isaiah quickly got down from his horse and smiled as he walked to a very happy running moon, who had tears of joy strolling down her cheeks. He wiped away the tears from her cheeks and gave her a passionate kiss. For the moment, no one noticed the Hidatsa woman, no one except Cypher's bird woman, who had a curious look, but was patiently waiting for her daughters to get off their father, so she could have what was left of him. Okay, mon petits, said Jacques, let me up so I can go some other properly. As he got up and gave his wife a passionate kiss and a hug, the girls giggled at the shenanigans of their parents and their brother who was still in a romantic embrace with his wife. When Jacques finally released Cypher's bird woman, she asked him about the Hidatsa woman. The Frenchman grinned. Oh, Isaiah, he said. I think you'll have some explaining to do. Isaiah just rolled his eyes and sighed after he released Running Moon from his embrace. He walked to Whitebird and helped her down from her horse and quickly introduced her to everyone. Turning to Running Moon, he explained how the Gross Venture captured her and how he, Jacques, and Pierre saved her from her captors. Not we, mon ami, said Pierre. You'll save her from her captors. Thank you, jackass, said Isaiah as he sighed in frustration. What will you do with her, husband? asked Running Moon. Using sign language for Whitebird's benefit, he answered. We're taking her back to her people where she belongs, he said. But right now, I think it best she come back with us to Yellow Wolf's village and stay with us until spring. Running Moon looked Whitebird up and down. She noticed for the first time how pretty she was. At first, she was concerned that Isaiah was tired of her and wanted to take another wife, but she was deeply relieved that wasn't the case. She also noticed the black eye and cut on Whitebird's lower lip, and assumed that the Gross Ventura had abused her. The Hidatsa woman approached Running Moon and Isaiah all of a sudden, nearly causing the latter to jump in fright, much to the amusement of Jacques-Pierre and the women. You are Yellowhair's woman? Asked Whitebird in sign. Running Moon nodded. Your man is a brave and kind man. He killed five of the Grossventress dogs who took me, including the one who killed my father and gave me all their scalps. That was the first time Whitebird ever mentioned any family she may have lost or what the Grossventure put her through. There was no man braver or more kind than Yellow Hair, said Running Moon in sign. I resent that, joked Jacques in a mock anger. Cypher's bird woman elbowed him hard in the side to shut him up. White bird, said Isaiah in sign. We will take you back to your people, but right now it is not safe. No one disagreed with Isaiah's logic. It was still winter. Even though the weather had been mild, a blizzard could come at any time, and the Gross Ventura were still a concern. We are going north to the land of the Assiniboine, said Isaiah. You can stay with us until spring, and we will personally take you back to your people. We? Says Jacques in question. I meant Running Moon and me. Running Moon noticed that the white bird became downcast, and she gently took her hand and escorted her back to the teepee that she and Isaiah were sleeping in. Isaiah had a shocked look on his face as he watched his pregnant wife and the Hidatsa woman disappear into the lodge. Mon ami, said Pierre, you look like you have seen the ghost. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wasn't expecting Whitebird to stay on our lodge, said Isaiah. And just who were you expecting to take her in? Said Cypher's bird woman. Isaiah was about to answer. But the look on the Assiniboine woman's face said it all, and he bit his tongue. Jacques was laughing until his insides hurt as was Shooting Star Woman and the girls. They thought the entire predicament that Isaiah had gotten himself into was funny. After Jacques got control of himself, he gently placed his hand on the youth's shoulder. It's not all that bad, mon ami, he said. You got to admit you would make a fine second wife for you. Not going to happen, said Isaiah. I could never do that to Running Moon. To what to Running Moon? asked Jacques. Men who have more than one wife commanded most respect in certain tribes. The Asinabon and the Hitatsa are no exception. Then you take Wiper as a second wife, said Isaiah. Mon Dieu, exclaimed Jacques. Cypher's build woman will kill me. And just what do you think Running Moon will do, said Isaiah. From where we're standing, said Jacques. She seems to be all right with it. It isn't right, said Isaiah. Men don't have more than one wife. Says who? said Pierre. Pierre was about to say more, but a look from Shooting Star Woman said that would not be wise. Jacques chuckled at his son before giving Isaiah some healthy advice. Mon ami, he said. I know why you saved the Hitasa Tamzel from the Gros Isaiah looked at the Frenchman and could tell he was serious. Who felt it was the right thing to do? said Jacques. Not because you were interested in a second wife. I am not interested in a second wife, said Isaiah. And it was the right thing to do. That is all I know. No one is saying it wasn't, said Jacques. But let me ask you this. If Ronnie Moon does not object, but encourages you to take Whitebird as a second wife, then what is wrong with that? Why would she encourage me to do that? Because her people are not like us whites, said Jacques. They are not as narrow-minded or uptight when it comes to marriage or even sex, and that goes for just about nearly every tribe out there. Well, I have always known they were different, said Isaiah. But still, I don't know about taking a second wife any more than I feel about taking scalps. At that moment, Running Moon exited the lodge. Can we talk for a moment, husband? She said as she gently took his hand. Isaiah allowed his wife to pull him towards the lake which wasn't far from their secluded camp. The snow wasn't deep and the ground, though cold, was not wet. They found a spot near a tree that had no snow, and it was dry for them to sit down. Wrapped in a buffalo robe, Running Moon was quiet. Isaiah was wrapped in a Hudson's Bay blanket, and he still had his pistols, knives, and rifle, just in case for protection. 
he sat next to his beloved wife, trying to read her thoughts. I spoke with Whitebird, she finally said. She was expecting you to take her as a wife. That is not why I saved her from the Cross Ventra, responded Isaiah. Running Moon smiled at him, beaming with pride. I know, she said. What has she told you? asked Isaiah. When the Gross Venture came, they killed her parents, said Running Moon. She was an only child. Does she have any other family? An uncle on her mother's side, said Running Moon. But she said that he is not a good man. Isaiah sighed. Do you want me to take her as a second wife? he asked. It would be good, said Running Moon. My people have traded with the Hidatsa, and you having a wife in both them and my tribe would be beneficial. Isaiah shook his head. Running Moon could tell that this bothered him tremendously. Where I come from, he said, men don't take second wives, not while the first wife is living. Really? asked Running Moon. Isaiah nodded. To us, it is an act of betrayal of the marriage vows between a man and his wife, he said. Betrayal is something I am too familiar with. Running Moon gently placed her hand on Isaiah's and squeezed. You are not betraying me, she said. My heart will always be yours. As will mine, said Isaiah, though he sensed a butt coming. Take White Bird, said Running Moon. She has no one else. The Cross Venture made sure of that, and you are a good man. Isaiah wasn't sure he was convinced. Look at it this way, said Running Moon. I am with child, and we could use the help. I know you will always love me and never do anything to hurt me. What does she want? asked Isaiah. She wishes to be with you as a second wife, said Running Moon. That is, if you wish to take her. Isaiah sighed again and looked into the night sky. He was caught between a rock and a hard place. While he understood the benefits of having two wives from two different tribes, especially tribes that were not at war with each other, he often thought of his Lutheran Christian upbringing. He knew in the Old Testament, men of God took more than one wife. But it was clear that was not what God had in mind. The results of men's choices in the marriage department, throughout biblical history at least, never ended well. At that point, Running Moon pulled Isaiah's face towards her and she kissed him. He loved the way she did that. Every time she kissed him, he was at her mercy. She pushed him back to lie down on the ground and undid his buckskin pants. Isaiah knew what was going to happen next, but he was concerned. His wife was four months pregnant, and he didn't know how sex was going to affect the baby. Are you sure about this? He asked. Running Moon smiled as she lifted her dress. It has been too long since I have had you. For the rest of the night, she rode him like a stallion, until they both howled in the climax. The moon was out in full. Wolves were singing in unison to it, as a happy couple collapsed into each other's arms from their strong lovemaking. It was at that point Isaiah made his decision. All he needed was a little convincing from his wife. Chapter 14 Manuel Lisa during the following months, the Ladus and the Reinhards traveled from the Big Horns back to the Big Sheep Mountains, 
trapping beaver, otter, mink, and other fur-bearing animals along the way. They managed to avoid any entanglements with the Gross Ventra and their Blackfoot allies. By the time they arrived at the village in Yellow Wolf, it was the first week of April. It was a joyous reunion for everyone. Shooting Star Woman and Pierre announced that they were expecting, and Running Moon's parents, Wolf's Paw and Little Feather, were extremely happy that they were about to be grandparents. Isaiah and Running Moon introduced Wiper to everyone, and explained how she ended up being the second wife of Yellowhair. Isaiah and Running Moon were still getting to know Whitebird better. Through sign language, she was learning both English and the Assiniboine language. She knew some French because French trappers had stayed in her village many times, and she picked up on it. Cypher's Birdwoman and the girls often pitched in and helped her improve on all three languages, since they could speak both French and English fluently, and they were, of course, Assiniboine. In return, Whitebird would teach Isaiah and Running Moon the Hidatsa language, which was similar to the Crow Tongue. As usual, Running Moon was picking up on the Hidatsa language better and faster than her husband was, which slightly annoyed Isaiah and amused Jacques and Pierre. They knew that the now two wives of Yellowhair had become close, and like all women, gossip with each other about their man in a language other than English. But it was not all fun and games. Whitebird never had a chance to properly mourn her parents, and there were many a night during their travels back to the Assiniboine country that she would cry at night over them. A lot of times she would put a curse on the Gross Venture scalps as revenge. Isaiah and Running Moon were both a huge comfort for Whitebird. Isaiah would sometimes just hold her and let her cry on his shoulder, while Running Moon would sing to her in her native tongue. In addition, Isaiah sometimes prayed over her and for her deceased parents and their souls. Isaiah never considered himself a religious man, despite growing up in his father's Lutheran faith, but he did believe in the Bible and in God. He believed that the Almighty was watching over Whitebird's parents. He wasn't sure if he believed that their spirits passed to the happy hunting grounds as many tribes believed, but he didn't completely disavow it. During his short time in the West, Isaiah has seen many strange coincidences happen, from his friendship with Jacques Ledeau and his family, to his marriage with Running Moon and now Whitebird all in less than a year. Somebody upstairs was pulling the strings in the journey of his young life, and there was no way it was by chance. In the wilderness, you went where the wind took you. Isaiah Reinhardt was going where it was taking him, and he was not about to stop now. Around the same time, while everyone was getting settled in Yellow Wolf's village, back in St. Louis, a Spanish gentleman was about to follow where the wind would lead him. His name was Manuel Lisa and he had just put together an expedition to head a river to the Yellowstone. Born in 1772 in New Orleans, Louisiana, the 34-year-old Spaniard had arrived in St. Louis in 1799 to enter the fur trade. He had just left St. Louis with a company of 42 men, among them George Droulard, a veteran from the Lewis and Clark expedition, who was half French and half Shawnee Indian. Another was Edward Rose, a half-black, half-Cherokee Indian man from Kentucky. While traveling up the Missouri to reach the Yellowstone, his expedition would run into another veteran of the Lewis and Clark expedition, John Coulter, who was on his way back to civilization, but Lisa convinced him to join him as a guide since both he and Droulard were knowledgeable about the area and the tribes that lived there. While he already had trading rights with the Osage Indians, Manuel Lisa wanted more. He wanted to be filthy rich and the fur trade was the way to achieve that goal. 
Once they reach a tributary to the Yellowstone River in what is now Wilston, North Dakota, Lisa and his men began descending some 170 miles into what is now eastern Montana, right into Assiniboine country. It was the middle of June one early morning when Isaiah and Pierre had just returned to the village from a hunt. The boats were first seen by some Assiniboine boys who were fishing and ran back to the village to inform the chief. By the time Isaiah and Pierre had brought in their kill, the village was abuzz about the boat that was coming down the Yellowstone. I wonder who it could be, said Isaiah. There's only one way to find out, said Pierre. Where's Papa? He's with the council, said Lizette. Pierre nodded and had his sisters help their mother, shooting Star Woman, Running Moon, and White Bird, skin the white-tailed deer they just brought in. I pray this doesn't bring any trouble, said Isaiah. Running Moon and I were planning on taking Whitebird to visit her people today. As a group from the village of Yellow Wolf stood on the bank, watching the huge boat coming down, Isaiah and Pierre had joined Jacques, who stood next to the chief along with Wolf's Paw and Stocking Bear. As the boat got closer, the faces of those who occupied it could be seen. A look of recognition came across the face of Jacques. Do you see what I see? He said, pointing to one of the men on the boat. Pierre and Isaiah stared at who Jacques was talking about, and automatically recognized none other than John Coulter himself. What on earth is John Coulter doing here on a boat, no less, said Isaiah. Last time we saw him and those two dimwits, they were traveling the Yellowstone country looking for beaver. It appears he found himself another expedition, said Pierre with a concerned look. I don't like this one bit, Papa. Neither do I, said Jacques. Lest we all find out what Monsieur Coulter is up to. Jacques mentioned his concern to Chief Yellow Wolf and Wolf's Paw. They, along with members of the council, agreed to be on guard, but thought they should at least invite the strangers in to see what their intentions were. Since father and son, along with Isaiah, knew of the white men on the boat, it was decided that they would translate and speak on behalf of the council, and find out what Coulter intended, assuming he was the leader of this expedition, which it appeared he wasn't. As Jacques shouted to the boat to invite the expedition ashore, Manuel Lisa was contemplating if he should go when John Coulter spoke to him. I know that Frenchman, sir, he said. His name is Jacques Ledeau, and if I am not mistaken, those are his wife's people, the Assiniboine. Can they be trusted? asked Lisa. I'm not sure about them, said Coulter, but he sure can. That's good enough for me, said Lisa. And call away, men. We're going ashore. Dressed in his finest buckskin attire, Manuel Lisa, with both Coulter and Drouillard, rode ashore in one of the canoes and greeted Chief Yellow Wolf with a peace sign and offered tobacco as a gift. It is good that you survive the winter, Monsieur Coulter, said Jacques. Good to see you too again, Ledeau, responded John Coulter. Allow me to introduce you, the leader of this expedition, Senor Manuel Lisa. Pleasure to meet you, Senor Ledeau, said Lisa as he shook Jacques's hand. There was something about the Spaniard that Jacques didn't like. It wasn't cockiness or confidence, because he had plenty of that himself. But something told him that Manuel Lisa was not someone to be crossed or trusted. Likewise, said Jacques. My son Pierre and mon ami Isaiah Reinhardt. Both men nodded at Manuel Lisa, who bowed his head to them, before returning his attention to the chief and council. Corta tells me you live among these uh, Cinnabons, said Manuel Lisa. Oui, answered Jacques. 
Chief Yellow Wolf has asked me to translate and help discuss matters of important business, if any. Excellent, then, said Lisa. Kindly tell him that my, uh, man and I are just passing through and we mean him and his people no harm. This was obvious to Jacques, Pierre, and Isaiah, but Lisa's statement was translated and the chief nodded his understanding. Chief Yellow Wolf asked Manuelisa where he was going with so many men on one boat. After Jacques translated the question, seeing no reason to lie, the Spaniard was truthful. We're heading to the mouth of the Yellowstone River, where we meet the Big Horn, he said. My men and I plan to build a fort and have it completed hopefully before winter. So there was. Isaiah didn't like the sound of that, and after Jacques translated what Lisa had just said, neither did anyone who heard it, including Chief Yellow Wolf and the Council. You trade with the crow, said Yellow Wolf. That was a statement, not a question. When Jacques translated for him, Lisa just shrugged. I do not wish for trouble, he said, but I will trade with anyone who is willing to trade with me. A murmur rose through the crowd after Jacques translated Lisa's last statement. Isaiah automatically did not like the situation. He had nothing personal against the crows, but they were enemies to the Assiniboine, and not only was Manuel Lisa and his men going to trap in crow country, but they planned on building a fort there so they could trade with them. He feared this was a powder keg waiting to explode. While he liked John Coulter, he didn't know him that well, and he immediately disliked Lisa. Sensing the tension in the air, Manuel Lisa tried to ease it. I have no quarrel with your people, he said. I am also willing to trade with you, if you are willing to come to my fort after it is built. Jacques translated, then asked the chief if he could speak to the Spaniard. The chief granted permission. Monsieur Lisa, said Jacques, do you really think you can just come into the land of our enemies and trade with them, and then expect us to travel down to your fort and trade with you also? Where we are vulnerable? Monsieur Ledo, I understand your concern, said Lisa, but I am a businessman. However, I assure you that the Assiniboine or any tribe who comes to my fort will not be so vulnerable. How so? Because my fort would be considered neutral territory, said Lisa. Tribes that were traditionally enemies to each other will not fight or attack each other while they are at fault for trade. Jacques wanted to laugh. He translated what Manuel Lisa said and Chief Yellow Wolf and all those who heard the translation thought the Spaniard was not sane. Isaiah had heard enough and offered his two cents. Senor Lisa, if you think that your fault will be neutral territory between competing tribes, then I wish you the best of luck, he said, because you're going to need it, especially if you plan on trading with the Blackfeet and the Gross Ventures tribes. As I said, I am a businessman, said Lisa. I will trade with any tribe that wishes to benefit from my business as long as they are peaceful. Now Jacques and Pierre laughed and translated what was just said. Everyone just shook their heads in disbelief. Chief Yellow Wolf said to Manuel Lisa that he and his men are welcome to stay the night, which the Spaniard accepted. Later that evening, John Coulter paid Jacques, Pierre, Isaiah, and their families a visit. He was accompanied by George Drouillard. I wish to introduce you to a friend of mine from the Lewis and Clark expedition, he said. This here's George Drouillard. Pleasure to meet you, said Jacques. The pleasure is all mine, said George Drouillard. You are friends too, oui? said Pierre. 
French and Johnny, answered George. What happened to your friends, John? asked Isaiah. Uh, they figure the fur trapping business wasn't for them, he answered. So they went back to civilization. They figured the full trade wasn't for them, and I figure that civilization wasn't for me, laughed George. The Ladoes and Isaiah, along with John Coulter, had a good laugh as well. How did you end up with the Manuel Lisa? asked Jacques. I was on my way back to St. Louis, said John. He, along with George here, were on their way up and convinced me to join him. I wouldn't trust him, John, said Jacques. What he plans on doing is a disaster waiting to happen. And a lot of good men will die because of it. Well, he has big ideas, said John. Who am I to get in the way of that? I would, said Pierre, if I were not too fond of dying. John Coulter chuckled. Wanting to change the subject, Coulter noticed Whitebird. I heard a lot has changed for you, Isaiah, he said. Two wives, huh? Isaiah turned beet red as Jacques and Pierre chuckled and the women giggled. <laughs> Lucky bastard, said Coulter. That he is, said Pierre. He just doesn't know as yet. Shut up, said Isaiah. I am also going to be a father. I noticed, said John. Congratulations to you both. You said you were on your way back to St. Louis when you ran into Mr. Lisa and his men, said Isaiah. What made you want to join him? Well, I guess it's these mountains, said John. Fact is, I am like George here. I ain't ready to return to civilization. That is understandable, said Jacques. These mountains can get into your blood. I myself will definitely spend the rest of my days here. Chapter 15 Attack of the Blackfeet and Birthday John Coulter, George Druyard, and Manuel Lisa said their goodbyes to the village of Yellow Wolf as they returned to the boat and continued their journey down the Yellowstone River to the Bighorn. While Jacques and Pierre did find Manuel Lisa's plan to be insane, they did find some benefit in it. If Lisa succeeded in building his fort, that meant instead of going all the way to St. Louis every summer to sell their plues, they could head down to Lisa's fort and sell and trade there. Isaiah liked the idea at first, but he worried about encounters with the Blackfeet and Gross Ventura, who sometimes raided the area. Not to mention, the crow might be a problem. I don't think it is wise to travel to this new fort that Manuel Lisa's building, said Isaiah. The risks look too high. They look no different if we go to St. Louis, said Jacques. I don't like the idea of anyone building a fort so they can trade with our enemies, but it is riskier traveling to St. Louis every summer. You and Pierre have done that on more than one occasion, it seems, said Isaiah. Divine providence, mon ami, said Jacques. It is much longer to travel to St. Louis than it is to this new fort, and there are more enemy tribes whose territories we will be traveling through. Pierre agreed with his father to a point. The thought of going into Crow Country to trade for plues and supplies was different than trapping in Crow Country, and traveling to St. Louis made better sense, even though it was longer. Papa, we could get some five or seven dollars a pound in people plues to St. Louis, said Pierre. What is stopping Manuel Lisa from whipping us off as trappers, since he will be the only trader in Yellowstone? Which is probably why he won't be too successful, said Isaiah. Jacques had to think for a minute. 
If Manuel Lisa did succeed in building a fort in the Yellowstone region, that would make him the only traitor, which meant he may pay the highest bidder for beef blues. But he could charge enormous amounts of money for supplies the trappers needed, and that didn't sit well with him. Ladies, said Jacques, we would like to hear your opinions. Cypher's bird woman was the first to speak. I don't like this Manuel Lisa, she said. He strikes me as a man who will never have enough, because he's never satisfied. I don't trust anyone who built a fort in the land of our enemies so they can trade with them, said Shooting Star Woman. I pray he fails. That is harsh, chuckled Pierre. He had never known his wife to have strong opinions on certain things, but he appreciated it when she spoke them. I have never been to the St. Louis, said Running Moon. Would you like to go see it? asked Isaiah. Running Moon nodded. How about you, White Bird? I've always been curious about where your people come from, said White Bird in an accented English. Isaiah had been impressed with her English, saying that both she and Running Moon spoke better than he did. He hoped that both his Assiniboine and Hidatsa would be just as good. Right now, I believe it would be unwise to head down to St. Louis, said Isaiah. At least not all of us. Everyone looked at Isaiah questioningly. Running Moon is with child, and she could give birth any day now, he said. Plus, we need to visit the Hidatsa, so White Bird can be reunited with her people as I promised. White Bird smiled at that, as did Running Moon, who placed her hands on her protruding belly. The baby wasn't due for another couple of weeks, but anything could happen and traveling for long periods of time in her condition was not healthy. A few days later, all was well in the village, until a Cinnabon scouts rode in, shouting, The Blackfeet are coming! The Blackfeet are coming! Everyone calmly but quickly got into action. Warriors, led by Wolf's Paw and Stalking Bear, got prepared for battle, mounted their horses and went to meet their hated enemy. Jacques-Pierre and Isaiah, guns at the ready, were not far behind. But the former told Isaiah to stay with the village and help look after the women. How can you ask me to do that? I said Isaiah angrily. The warriors need every man available and I will not cowboy and hide like a mouse. Wolf's paw beamed with pride at his son-in-law, as did Stalking Bear. But they both understood why Jacques wanted him to stay behind. No one is saying you're a coward, mon ami, said Jacques. But we need someone to look after the women and children as well as the elderly. Don't forget your new family, said Pierre with a smile. Almost ashamed for being offended by such a request, Isaiah promised that he would not let them down, and if the Blackfeet got any of the defendant warriors, he would make them wish they hadn't. The Blackfeet came in from the northwest as the Assiniboine defenders were forming a line between themselves and the village, shouting obscenities and profanities at their oncoming enemy. Chief Yellow Wolf, on top of his spotted horse, armed with a flintlock rifle, remained stoic as he stared at the enemy. The rifle was a gift from Jacques Ludeau who rode up next to his longtime friend, followed by Wolf's Paw and Stalking Bear. The Blackfeet were getting up their bloodlust, shouting back obscenities and profanities in their language to the Assiniboine. One warrior rode out on his white horse, turned around, bent over while he's still on his horse and pulled down his breech claw, exposing his buttocks. That is not very nice of him, said Chief Yellow Wolf to Jacques. We, oui, responded the Frenchman. Chief Yellow Wolf immediately cocked his rifle, which was already loaded, aimed at the still-mooning Blackfoot warrior, and fired. The musket ball found its mark, hitting the warrior in the back, severing his spine. The force of the ball knocked him off his horse, and he landed face first in the dirt. He was dead within seconds. It begins, my warriors, shouted the Assiniboine chief. The Blackfeet, 
bloodlust already up, were outraged and charged. The Assiniboine charged from their location, firing bows and arrows and muskets as they moved. Jacques and Pierre fired first, hitting two Blackfoot warriors off their horses, and charged with the rest of their Assiniboine friends. The ensuing battle between the Assiniboine defenders and the Blackfoot invaders was up close and personal. Jacques had been in such battles before in his youth when he served in the French army during the American Revolutionary War. The tactics he learned he passed on to his son, and even shared with many of the warriors of his adopted tribe. Chief Yellow Wolf, not having time to reload his rifle, used it as a war club, breaking a Blackfoot's jaw with the butt of his rifle, knocking him unconscious before taking out his tomahawk and burying it into the downed warrior's skull. Stalking Bear, Pierre, and the three other Assiniboine warriors surrounded the chief in a protective circle, fighting off enemy invaders who now wanted the chief's scalp. Wolf's Paw and Jacques managed to take down four Blackfoot warriors. Wolf's Paw put three arrows into two of the warriors, while Jacques shot one Blackfoot right between the eyes with a pistol, and quickly gutted another with his Arkansas toothpick. The battle was fierce, with the Assiniboines gaining the upper hand. Despite the carnage piling up, some of the Blackfoot invaders managed to break through and head straight for the village. Isaiah and a dozen young Assiniboine warriors, who stayed behind to protect the village, saw them coming and were waiting for them. Isaiah quickly counted at least seven of the invaders riding in, and decided to cut their numbers down a bit. He aimed his Winchester rifle at the leader, cocked, and fired. The bloodthirsty Blackfoot fell backward with a hole in his chest, breaking his neck as he landed on the ground. The other defenders followed suit, unleashing arrow after arrow into the remaining invaders. Running Moon reloaded Isaiah's rifle, and he was ready to do more damage to protect his family and friends. Sensing the odds against them, the surviving invaders quickly did an about-face and tried to return to the main party, but Isaiah cut one of them down with his rifle. The retreating invader's head exploded, and his companions fared no better as they rode right into the returning main Assiniboine defenders, and were immediately cut down courtesy of Pierre Ledoux and Stalking Bear's rifles. The battle was won for the Assiniboine. The Blackfeet were repelled with many casualties. Despite the battle being bloody and personal, the Assiniboine lost not one warrior. There were a few injuries. Jacques got a slight scratch on his side with a Blackfoot's knife, and Chief Yellow Wolf took an arrow to his upper arm, but it was not serious. When they returned to the village, Cypher's Bird Woman immediately went to work, cleaning her husband's wound and sewing it closed after she checked that there were no internal injuries. Chief Yellow Wolf's arm wound was tended to by Black Fox, the village medicine man. He checked the arrow to see if it was poisonous, for some tribes were notoriously known for dipping their arrowheads into dead carcasses or into rattlesnake venom. When Black Fox was satisfied this was not the case, he continued to tend to the chief's wound, treating it with special herbs that were turned into paste. He recommended to his chief to rest for a couple of days, before heading out to check on other warriors who were injured. Despite everything that happened, that day was a good day. Not only was the Assiniboine victorious in repelling the Blackfeet, many enemy scalps were taken. Jacques and Pierre themselves were proud to add a total of seven new scalps between them to their collection. Among the Assiniboine defenders who stayed in the village to protect the women and children, and the elderly, Two young warriors, Swiftbird and Crowfoot, told their chief and the council how Isaiah took down two of the Blackfoot invaders that snuck past the main defenders. 
They said his actions, which moved all of the defenders to follow suit, caused the remaining invaders to retreat. Isaiah realized that these two did him a favor and paid him a huge compliment by telling everyone how brave he was in helping defend a village. Running Moon and Whitebird were both beaming with pride at their husband and confirmed Swiftbird and Crowfoot's testimony. Jacques and Pierre patted Isaiah on the back and congratulated him. Chief Yellow Wolf, with his arm in a sling, approached Isaiah and thanked him for staying in the village to help protect his people. Wolf's Paw gave his son-in-law the biggest praise by placing his hand on his shoulders, squeezing tightly. You are everything Jacques says you are, Yellow Hair, and I am proud that my daughter has you as her husband. This is my family now, said Isaiah. These are my people now and I will fight to protect and defend them with my life if necessary. At that moment, Crowfoot dragged over the bodies of the two Blackfoot that Isaiah had killed. Isaiah was hoping to avoid what must be done next, but he knew it was impossible. He hated scalping, but he did not want to be seen as weak, especially not in front of Running Moon and Whitebird, despite the former knew of her husband's feelings towards the practice. Isaiah thanked Crowfoot for bringing in the bodies, and he knelt down. Scalping both dead Blackfoot warriors, then held their scalps in the air for all to see, eliciting cheers, whoops, and hollers from the whole village. It was at that moment Running Moon grabbed her belly, and suddenly her water broke. Isaiah ran to his wife as she was being held by Whitebird and Cypher's Birdwoman. What's wrong, Running Moon? he asked. The baby, said Running Moon. It is coming now. Now, shouted Isaiah. It can't be now. It is now, my husband. Isaiah thought he was going to faint, but he held on to Pierre to keep himself upright. Cypher's Birdwoman, Shooting Star Woman, and Whitebird took Running Moon to Cypher's Birdwoman and Jacques' Lodge. Isaiah followed them, but was told by Cypher's Birdwoman to stay outside. He was about to object, but Jacques, Pierre, and Stocking Bear sat him down by a stump so they could keep him calm. Running Moon's parents, Wolf's Paw and Little Feather, arrived after hearing the news. Little Feather went inside the lodge to help her daughter, as Wolf's Paw joined his son-in-law and the rest of the men as they tried to calm an extremely nervous father-to-be named Yellowhair. Isaiah was nervous as a condemned prisoner being sent to the gallows. He wanted to make sure that both Running Moon and the baby would be okay. He prayed non-stop that all would be well. Nearly all the men, except Pierre, understood and sympathized with him. They had been where he was now. Pierre and Shooting Star Woman weren't expecting their first child for another couple of months, but he was young enough to remember when his mother gave birth to his sisters, and how nervous his father had been every time. He and his sisters had a strong relationship with their father, and he hoped that he would be as good as a father. He was assuming that was what Isaiah was thinking. Isaiah never really talked much about his family, especially his parents. All Jacques and Pierre knew was that one of Isaiah's older brothers knocked up a girl Isaiah was courting. And that is why he left South Carolina. Other than that, he rarely spoke about his parents. Everything will be alright, mon ami, said Jacques. I know, said Isaiah. I just want to be a good father, like mine was. You'll rarely ever speak about him, said Jacques. Your mother too, for that matter. I haven't thought about them much lately, said Isaiah. I've been rather occupied. Having two wives and baby on the way can do that, laughed Pierre. Everyone just laughed at Pierre's statement. Even Isaiah chuckled. 
A while later, the sound of a baby crying could be heard from inside the lodge. Isaiah lifted off the stump like a rocket as the lodge flap opened, and Cypher's bird woman appeared with a huge smile. You have a daughter, yellow hair, she said. And running moon, said Isaiah. Is she all right? She's fine, said Cypher's bird woman. Why shouldn't she be? Isaiah sighed and thanked the creator. Can I see them? Cypher's bird woman stepped aside as she guided the new father into the lodge. Isaiah slowly walked in and saw Running Moon holding their newborn daughter, surrounded by her mother, White Bird, and Shooting Star Woman. Isaiah knelt beside them and kissed Running Moon on her forehead. Your daughter, my husband, said Running Moon as she handed the baby to him. Isaiah took his daughter into his arms and kissed her on her forehead. The baby looked exactly like him, but a little darker. She had a head full of hair, which appeared to be yellowish-brown instead of jet black, and she had her father's blue eyes. She is beautiful, said Isaiah, like her mother. Running Moon smiled. White Bird was happy for both Running Moon and Isaiah, but she had a sense of emptiness in her heart. She wanted to have a baby as well, and she wanted it to be Isaiah's baby. Sensing her sadness, Isaiah turned to her. Your time will come, White Bird, he said. When the Creator sees fit, then we will have a baby together. White Bird smiled at that, and her husband's statement lifted her with some hope. Until then, said Isaiah, say hello to your daughter, for she belongs to all three of us. Running Moon smiled as Isaiah handed the baby to White Bird. She was proud of Isaiah, and she was proud of White Bird as well. The Hidatsa woman had become a great friend to her, and she hoped that she had become a great source of comfort for her. What do you wish to name her? asked White Bird in a Cinnabon. Isaiah turned to Running Moon, seeking what she wanted to name the baby. Light Shines, she said. I want to name her Light Shines. I like it, said Isaiah. She must have a white name because she is half white. Now what white names will you have in mind, mon ami? Said Jacques as he, Pierre, and Wolfspaw entered the lodge. Isaiah thought for a moment, and then smiled. Catherine, he said, after my mother. They are both good names, said Wolfspaw. No name is better than what you have given her. At that moment... Isaiah, Running Moon, and White Bird smiled. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stagecoach, brought to you by Dusty Saddles Publishing, the home of Western excellence, where the best of the Western authors can be found. Visit our website at dspublishingnetwork.com. Please join us for our next episode as we continue with the adventures of Isaiah Reinhardt in Where the Wind Takes You, by Leroy A. Peters. Mm-hmm.